So uh, let's look here at Mark chapter 10. <clears throat> and uh, we're going to uh, read another story about Jesus in a personal conversation with someone. We, a couple of weeks ago, we read the story of Jesus and Nicodemus, a Jewish leader, and what Jesus had to say to him and what Jesus taught him. And then last week, we talked about Jesus and the Samaritan woman, a totally different person, totally different set of circumstances. And we learned more about Jesus and about ourselves, too, and what we uh, read about that encounter. And today we're going to read about a third encounter of Jesus and a rich young ruler. Again, yet another set of circumstances. And uh, in all of these cases, these people, when they encountered Jesus, had an interest. There was an interest there. They didn't know if they truly believed who he was. But Jesus kind of guided them along and helped them to understand and to see a little bit more clearly who he was, why he came, and what he was offering them. I think in, in all cases, he was teaching them, not only Nicodemus and the Samaritan woman, but this man today, that a change in their life was necessary. And that's the same thing he taught us when we first encountered Jesus. And when we first started to understand God's word, we came to see that there's a way of life that God wants us to live that we weren't living entirely. Uh, and God called on us to change, and by his strength and by his grace, a lot of changes have taken place. But let's read the story here in Mark 10, beginning in verse 17. As Jesus started on his way, a man ran up to him and fell on his knees before him. Good teacher, he asked. What must I do to inherit eternal life? Well, why do you call me good? Jesus answered. No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not give false testimony. Do not defraud. Honor your father and mother. Teacher, he declared, all these I have kept since I was a boy. Jesus looked at him and loved him. He was a lovable guy. He had a lot of enthusiasm. One thing you lack, he said, go sell everything you have and give it to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come follow me. At this, the man's face fell. He went away sad because he had great wealth. Well, we'll stop right there for now. Let's go back and, and look over a couple of these verses and see what more we might be able to uh, glean from them. As I said in verse 21, Jesus looked at him and loved him. He was an enthusiastic young man. Uh, he came running to Jesus. You know, back in those days in the heat of the Middle East, not too many people ran a lot, but this guy was so enthusiastic, he was so anxious to talk to Jesus, he came running to Jesus, he fell on his knees before him, so he had respect for him. He was concerned about attaining eternal life. That's another good thing. That's something everybody should be concerned about. So whoever seeks Jesus today with such enthusiasm, Jesus loves them. He loves you, he loves me, he loves whoever seeks him. 
And there are still people in this world today, we all know some of them, who ask serious questions about the purpose and the meaning of life. They may not consider themselves to be Christians. They know about God. They're not sure they believe in Him. They've heard about Jesus Christ. There may be some answers there, but they don't know really how to find out. You know, people you know may not ask you how to inherit eternal life because that's not their language. They don't speak in terms like that. Rather, they're concerned about the quality of their life and what it means to be a human being and how to find real happiness in their life. They still respect God even though they don't belong to a church. Some have a suspicion that Jesus may have the answers to their questions, but they don't know how to handle it. They're afraid, they're concerned. Unfortunately, along with this man's sincerity and enthusiasm, the young man has some serious misunderstandings about Jesus, about himself, and about life, what life is meant to be. So Jesus is going to guide him through this now. He's going to help him to come to understand a little bit more about who Jesus is, who he is, who this young man is, and what life is all about. So let's, let's read on. Again, in verse 17, don't forget, the man said to him, good teacher. So it's not enough to refer to Jesus as just a good teacher. Remember, the Samaritan woman said, it seems to me that you're a prophet because Jesus was telling her all about her personal life. It's not enough to call Jesus a prophet. Uh, I think Nicodemus called Jesus rabbi which is a teacher in uh, Jewish culture. So all of these people had a limited view of Jesus. They knew that he was a good man, he was a teacher, he seemed to be a prophet, but that's not enough. It's not enough to refer to Jesus as a good teacher or a good person or a good example that we are to follow. And you know, people of other religions, Muslims, they know about Jesus and they think, yeah, he was a good man. But Albert Schweitzer was a good man, <laughs> but he wasn't the son of God. Jesus Christ is the son of God. So that's why Jesus replies the way he did. When the man says, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus replies by saying, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. Jesus wasn't denying his own goodness. He was encouraging the man to put two and two together to figure out who he truly was. What his true identity, what his true nature was, who he was talking to. Who is Jesus? He's the only begotten son of God. So Jesus is trying to, to guide this guy along. He recognizes that Jesus is good, but you know what? The scripture says there's none good when it comes to human beings. Romans 3 verse 10, Romans 3.10 says, there is none righteous, no, not one. So if this man recognizes Jesus' goodness, it must be the goodness of God because there is no human being who is good. Now, Jesus knew a lot about himself by this time in his ministry. He recognized that he truly was the son of God. There are three things that Jesus tries to bring out to this man here. 
Jesus knew this about himself. First of all, he had an intimate relationship with his father, with God the Father, that no other person ever had or ever could have. I want to hold my place and turn to Matthew 11, verse 27. Matthew 11 and verse 27. Here Jesus says this, No one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son and those to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. So Jesus recognized that he was the Son of God and is the Son of God, and he alone had a unique, intimate relationship with God the Father. So Jesus knew who he was, and he was trying to help people to understand who he was and who it was that they were talking to. A second thing that Jesus knew about himself, not only did he have a personal, intimate relationship with God the Father that no one else had, the second thing is Jesus knew that he was the fulfillment of the whole Old Testament. The whole Old Testament talked about him, predicted him. And a scripture I, I want to turn to is Luke 24, verse 27. Luke 24 and verse 27. Remember the story of shortly after Jesus' resurrection from the dead, he finds himself walking along the road, the road to Emmaus. And he bumps into a couple of guys who are walking along, and he kind of unknowingly joins their group, and they're talking. Luke 24, verse 27. As they walk along and as they're, they're conversing, they're not understanding about Jesus and who he was. And it says in verse 27, And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he, Jesus, explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. So that's another thing that Jesus knew during his earthly ministry. Not only that he had a, a one-of-a-kind, unique relationship with God the Father, but he came to fulfill all the Old Testament, starting from the very beginning. You know, when uh, Adam and Eve uh, sinned and uh, God pronounced a curse on the serpent and on them, and it talked about how the serpent was going to bite somebody in the heel, but then he was going to crush the serpent. That was Jesus Christ. You know, Satan was going to see to it that Jesus was crucified, but it was going to bring up about the ultimate destruction of Satan the devil. So starting way back then, going all the way through all the law, the prophets, the writings, it was all basically about Jesus. And he came to fulfill all of those prophecies. He wasn't just a prophet or a teacher. He was the fulfillment of all prophecy. And a third thing that Jesus knew about himself was that he alone taught with God-given authority. He knew this about himself as well. Matthew 7, verse 28, several times in the New Testament scriptures, in the Gospels specifically, it talks about how he, Jesus is teaching and the people react to his teaching. As it says here, when Jesus had finished saying these things, the crowds were amazed at his teaching because he taught as one who had authority as compared to the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the, the scribes. 
They recognized this about him, a God-given authority. He taught as one who had authority and not as their teachers of the law. So when Jesus interacted with people, whether it was Nicodemus or the Samaritan woman and now the young rich ruler, he knew who he was. And what he tried to do in a personal way, as recorded here in this account, explain to people, to kind of lead them on to see who he was. And that's why he said, why do you call me good? If you recognize somebody as good, only God is good. So that must mean that I'm God. I'm the son of God. You can only call Jesus good if you confess that he is good with the absolute goodness of God. And that's why when people look at us, and maybe from time to time, they may notice that we try to do something good. That we may be basically good people, you know, with the help of God. The glory doesn't go to us because it's Jesus dwelling in us, the Holy Spirit with us, that brings about any good thing that we can do, any good deed. So that's the first thing that Jesus tried to help the man see, who Jesus was, because the man had the wrong impression of Jesus. Now, the second thing that the man was wrong about, not only who Jesus was, but the man was wrong about himself. And let's go back here to verse 17. The man asked the question, we're in Mark 10, and verse 17. <clears throat> The man asked the question, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What must I do? He thought eternal life was a reward for good works. And he was fully capable of earning it by his own effort. He said, I'm ready, Lord. <laughs> I, want, I want to earn that eternal life. So you tell me what I need to do to, to accomplish that. Just as he had acquired all of his wealth, he was a rich man, just as he had acquired all of his wealth by his own efforts, so he thought he could acquire salvation by his own efforts. And notice what Jesus said to him, verse 19. Jesus goes ahead and lists a selection of some of the Ten Commandments. He says, he doesn't mention all of them, he says, you know the commandments, do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not give false testimony, do not defraud, and honor your father and mother. Now, this man quickly responds, teacher, all of these I have kept since I was a boy. So in other words, all my life, Lord, I've kept the commandments. In fact, he didn't see that he was a sinner or that he ever sinned, and of course he did. He must never have heard the Sermon on the Mount where Jesus said that his followers should have a righteousness greater than the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees. I'm going to turn back there to Matthew 5, the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew 5 and verse 20. For I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. So the Pharisees, the teachers of the law, they knew the law like no, nobody else. They even added a lot to the law. Oral traditions, man-made traditions. 
And a lot of times they criticized Jesus and his apostles for not keeping the traditions that they had set up. <clears throat> but Jesus is saying here that our, in, in order for us to be saved, we have to have a kind of righteousness that is Jesus' righteousness. That is the only righteousness that gets us into heaven. Jesus' righteousness. No human righteousness is good enough. It's only Jesus' righteousness, which he credits to us when we believe in him. When we hear the gospel, when we believe, when we become followers, when we repent, when we're baptized, we are given Jesus' righteousness. It's not a righteousness that we can ever earn, try as hard as we might, be the best law keeper we can possibly be. That kind of righteousness is not acceptable to God. It's only Jesus' righteousness. And we remember the story of the wedding feast, you know, coming in the future, the, the great banquet. And it talks about people who come to this wedding feast and they're all given wedding garments to wear. And those wedding garments, the white wedding garments, represent the righteousness of Jesus that we're given, okay? That's the proper wedding garment for this wedding feast. And it tells the story of the guy at the, at the banquet. He sees some guy who doesn't have the right clothing on. He doesn't have the wedding garment given to him by Jesus, okay? The white righteousness of Jesus Christ garment that we're all going to be wearing. Because this guy thought his own garment was okay. That he could get, somehow get in there by his own good deeds, just like this rich young ruler thought. And what happens? The guy is kicked out. Because human righteousness is never good enough to get into heaven. No matter how good of a person you think you are and uh, how much effort you've put forth into your obedience, it's only Jesus' righteousness that is good enough that allows us in. Amen. So Jesus is talking about this kind of righteousness here. And notice he says uh, in Matthew 5, verse 27, he says, you heard that it was said, do not commit adultery, but I tell you, anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. So Jesus also in the Sermon of the Mount adds that you can be guilty of sinning in your heart without even performing an action. You know, you may not murder somebody, but if you hate somebody in your heart, you've already committed murder. That's the way God looks at it. So this man didn't seem to understand this type of sinning was even possible. So he said, I've kept all these rules from, from my youth, Lord. And Jesus said, I don't think so. Because I know human nature. And, you know, the word says none is righteous, no, not, not one. And when Jesus gave him a short list of commandments here, Jesus didn't even mention the, list, the commandment about coveting, which was probably this rich young ruler's chief sin. As a rich person, coveting, wanting more. This was probably his chief sin, and he didn't seem to notice that Jesus left it out of the list of commandments. Covetousness is a secret sin of the heart, rather than an act you commit. You know, I want more. I want what that person has. I want their car, I want their house, I want their wife or their husband, or whatever the case may be. 
Covetousness is not an openly recognizable sin. It's something that happens deep inside of you. And Jesus can see deep inside of people. And I think that he was probing this guy like he did with the Samaritan woman when he talked about her, the guy she was living with who was not her husband. He's pointing out to this man, you know, the statement that you just made that you kept all the commandments from your youth. I don't think so. The commandments Jesus cited all relate to one's duty to his neighbor. He didn't even mention the first four that refer to one's duty toward God. So if this man had a low, too low of an image of Jesus, he had too high of an image of himself. So there was no way that he could attain eternal life by keeping the commandments. And Jesus is trying to explain this to him. You know, most people today think that they are nice, that they're law-abiding citizens, they're not murderers or adulterers, they're not thieves or false witnesses. They wouldn't harm a fly, let alone their neighbor. But when they face God on Judgment Day, they're confident that the red carpet's going to be rolled out in in their honor. But it isn't going to happen. Because the truth is, we've broken every one of the Ten Commandments whether by doing or in our heart. And we do so regularly, maybe not in action, but in our heart, which God is chiefly concerned about. (laughs) What's happening with our heart, because that's the center of our emotions, our being, who we are as a person. And you know, you may not go out and rob a bank and, and do this and do that, but you see, if you've got problems inside, God's very concerned about that. And furthermore, we don't love God with all of our heart, our soul, our mind all the time, and we don't love our neighbor as ourselves all the time. And when asked, Jesus said that that was the most important commandment of all. So Jesus saw this man as who he truly was, and he sees us as how we truly are. We can't hide anything from God. So when God says there is none righteous, no, not one, he really means that because he sees it. So this story of the rich ruler is preceded in Scripture, back here in in Mark, by the story of the, the mothers bringing their little children to Jesus to be blessed. And what did Jesus say in that story? He said, unless you are like these little children, you cannot enter the kingdom of God. The only way to enter the kingdom is to humble yourself like a little child. And unless you receive the kingdom of God as an unearned free gift, like a child would, because a child can't go out and earn anything. If you want to bless a child or or make a child's day, you, you... Give them something. You give them a gift, a surprise little gift. And that's what God's salvation is to us. Unless you receive the kingdom of God as an unearned free gift from God, you'll never enter the kingdom. You can't earn it like the man wanted to. So, like I said, he misunderstood about Jesus and he misunderstood about himself. And Jesus is trying to help him along and to help him to understand. So the third area where the man was wrong was about life in general. He had the totally wrong outlook on life. Back here to uh, Mark 10. 
the original story. Verse 21. After the man was sure that he had kept all the commandments all his life, Jesus looked at him and loved him. One thing you lack, he said, go sell everything you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come follow me. Now, as it turns out, this man's possessions really meant more to him than the eternal life that he was asking about. If he really wanted the eternal life that he had come to Jesus to find out about, he would have done whatever was necessary. But Jesus, you know what? He has a way of... (laughs) Mary and I know a particular chiropractor that we go to, and uh, he has the ability, and I guess every chiropractor does, if you have a pulled muscle or something like that, he starts to work on you, and he knows somehow exactly where the most painful muscle in your body is. And he's got to work on that, you know, and, and massage that and, and get it blood flowing in there again. And that's what Jesus does with us. He knows us totally. And if we ask him to, and sometimes if we don't ask him to, he is there probing, like sticking that thumb right in that sore spot that we have. And he's bringing it to our attention. He's saying, hey, look at this. Here's an area where things need to change. You know, you've received salvation. You have been born again. But here's that part of you that I see very plainly that doesn't fit what you should look like as a born-again son or daughter of God. So you need to be aware of this. You need to work on this a little bit. And God has a unique ability to do that. And he's doing that with the man. He knows that this man worships money more than he does God. He's more concerned about his wealth and holding on to his wealth and gaining more wealth than he really is about eternal life or the kingdom of God. So Jesus kind of hits him right between the eyes. You know, all the money you've got, give it to the poor then that's going to free you up to follow me. You won't have to worry about that money again. Who's going to steal it or, you know, who's going to take it away? Money was the God that he worshipped, so Jesus made him choose. And Scripture tells us, I'll turn to Matthew 6, verse 24. Matthew 6, verse 24 No one can serve two masters. Either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. Jesus says, you cannot serve both God and money. And here, money, in some Bibles, it's the word mammon, which is not just money, but it's materialism. It's a false god. Jesus doesn't condemn money. Rather, he condemns the love of money covetousness. Jesus doesn't condemn possessions. He condemns putting our trust in our possessions. And that's what this man was doing. And Jesus made him choose. (laughs) What's it going to be? You can't worship both God and these riches that you possess. Choose. And unfortunately, the man chose poorly. But we can't judge him. 
if we were in the same position, who knows, we probably would have done the same thing. Notice in Luke 12, verse 15, Jesus, in talking about the dangers of being wealthy, and not just being wealthy, but having that mindset about physical things, possessions, gaining more and more of them, not being satisfied. Luke 12, verse 15, he said this, Watch out, be on guard against all kinds of greed. A man's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. So the man was wrong about life in general because he thought that a man's life does consist in all of his possessions, the abundance of his possessions. He was a very rich man. And Jesus is trying to guide him along and help him to see that, no, you're wrong about that. A man's life does not consist in the number of his possessions. Now back to Mark once again in, verse, in chapter 10. Now in verse 23. After this confrontation ends and the man walks away sad because he had great wealth, Jesus goes on to say here in Mark 10 verse 23. Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, How hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. The disciples were amazed at his words, but Jesus said again, children, how hard it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. The disciples were even more amazed and said to each other, who then can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, With man, this is impossible, but not with God. All things are possible with God. So it's very difficult for a rich man or a rich woman to enter the kingdom of God. Why? Because their concerns are about other things, their wealth, possessions, fear that somebody's going to try to, to steal them away from them. Uh, covetousness of trying to always get more and better and newer. It's very difficult for a person like that to enter the kingdom of heaven, but it's not impossible, as Jesus says here. It's not impossible for God to be able to root out a love of money if the person is willing. So it's very difficult, but not impossible, because with God, all things are possible. So there have been rich people who have come to Christianity. Probably not a whole lot, but some, if they're willing. Turn to one last passage here in Philippians. The Apostle Paul was one who, I think, lived this and learned many lessons from this whole concept of wealth and putting wealth in the proper place and in the proper perspective. And I really love what he says here in Philippians 3, beginning in verse 7. When we become to be Christians, we have to realize that that has now become the priority in our life, by far over anything else possible in our lives. And Paul had this right perspective. He said in verse 7, But whatever was to my profit, Whatever I had in my life before being called to be a follower of Jesus, whatever I put my hope and trust in, whatever 
consumed my attention all the time. Whatever was to my profit, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss compared to what? The surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them rubbish that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God and is by faith, Jesus' righteousness. That's what we talked about. You can only get that by responding to the gospel, humbling yourself, repenting, believing. That's when the righteousness of Jesus, Jesus' righteousness, the only righteousness that gets you into heaven and into the kingdom of God, is given to you as a gift that you can't earn. He says in verse 10, I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of sharing in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. And so somehow, that's God's doing. He doesn't understand fully how it happens. And so somehow to attain to the resurrection from the dead. That's the right perspective. That's the perspective that Jesus is trying to teach this rich young ruler. As soon as this wealthy man came to Jesus, I'm sure Jesus was thinking, uh-oh, we got, <laughs> we got trouble here. <laughs> this guy thinks he knows it all. He doesn't even understand who I am. He doesn't understand who he is. And he doesn't understand about life in general. So in this short passage, and perhaps the encounter went on beyond that, but this is what's recorded for us. Jesus tried to help him. And you know what? He has tried to help us in the same way. And he continues to try to help us. He continues to show us a little bit more every week, more clearly who he is. Amen. Jesus Christ. He's not just a good man like some think. He's not just a teacher, a prophet, whatever the case may be. He's the Son of God. The only begotten Son of God. Fully God and fully man. He's got a unique relationship with God the Father like nobody else has. He uh, came to fulfill all scripture, and he did. And he taught with a God-given authority that nobody else had. Amen. So then he tried to help the man to see about himself. You can't earn eternal life. Your, your riches are a burden to you that you don't even realize. You are not a perfect person who has kept the law all your life. You are a sinner. You continue to be a sinner. You have broken every commandment. Maybe not by your actions, but what's going on inside your heart. And thirdly, he tried to help him to see about life in general. That pursuing wealth all your life, that's not happiness. You may be happy to buy things, but they're not going to bring you joy. There are other deeper, more godly things Amen. that we need to pursue in our lives. So, 
The lessons we learned is that Jesus is not just a good man, a good example, or a good teacher. He is good with the absolute goodness of God himself. And we are not the good person that we think we are. We have not kept God's commandments. We have not loved him with all of our being, and we have not loved our neighbors as ourselves. So we need his grace and forgiveness. And thirdly, our only hope is to humble ourselves as children and receive eternal life as a free gift because Jesus died for us to enable that to happen. So we don't know whatever happened to this individual. We need to focus on ourselves. You know, we come to Jesus in the same way with wrong ideas. And over the years, we've learned a lot about him. And some of those wrong ideas have been corrected. Thanks be to God for that. We've learned more about ourselves and who we are. And that it's impossible to enter the kingdom of God or heaven without the righteousness of Jesus Christ, which is given to us as a gift that we can never earn on our own. And thirdly, about life itself. We need to focus on the priorities, and our priority is Jesus Christ. So thanks be to God that uh, he provides this help for us.